Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. All right. Well, this morning we are starting kind of the Christmas season here at Harvest Springs. We're finally into Christmas. I know uh, last week we were thinking, hey, should we should we spin up Christmas or should we just hang tight? And uh, and we celebrated our 20th anniversary last uh, last week, and it was just a blast. It was. Uh, it may not have been great for you, but it was great for me. I enjoyed uh, just connecting with all those uh, kind of past memories, and uh, some even some people from the the past came and and joined us, and it was just it was a real blessing. And Tosh and I just enjoyed so much uh, just getting to remember, and uh, and I, I hope you guys enjoyed that too. But we're not done, right? We're still there's still things for God to to do in us, and so we're going to keep pressing forward and and uh, maybe we'll get to our 40th uh, 20 years from now. So, uh, but we are starting Christmas today, kind of as in the the flow of Christmas. We're starting to kind of think around Christ, his birth, and the significance of that to us. It's it's kind of the whole point of Christmas, right? It's to bring us to a place where where we're remembering the significance that Christ actually was born, that he came. Now, every year when we, uh, when we do Christmas, usually we'll read uh, some prophecies and we'll connect it to prophecies. And there's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 about the coming Messiah. It's very, very familiar, I'm sure, to you. It's there in your notes in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord will give uh, you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, okay? His name shall be called Emmanuel. What do we know about the word Emmanuel? It means God with us. And so today we've titled, or we've started a series we're going to walk through in the next several weeks through the Christmas season and even kind of right afterwards, where we're just understanding the value of God's presence, the, the title of today's, or the title of this series is just simply called Presence. And when I say presence, if I'm 10 years old, I think it means gifts. But I want you and I to understand that we're not talking about, you know, presence with a T. We're talking about presence with a, a C-E at the end. That this is about God's presence with us and that Christ's birth was a radical shift in the worldview of mankind because of this word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, what does it mean? It simply means God with us. Well, and again, there in your notes, uh, a recap in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, Matthew's writing to a Jewish population, a Jewish culture, He's telling the story about Jesus, this, this, these people who have been very familiar with the prophecies in Isaiah. And so he quotes that, that Isaiah passage and connects it directly to Jesus, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of this Isaiah chapter 7 prophecy. And this is the prophecy, right? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When I started thinking about this several months ago, kind of where we're going to go for Christmas, and uh, I began to think about some of our favorite songs. 
around the Christmas season, right? We have songs that we like to sing. And one song that, that just comes to mind almost every time when I think of Christmas carol, it's this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It really is a prayer from a broken people. The Israelites singing this song, a promised Savior, Messiah, right? Isaiah 7, 14. It's a promise to the nation of Israel. And in their oppression, in their difficulty, right? The, the Israelites are being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans have occupied uh, Israel and uh, kind of making the Israelites' life miserable. And in the midst of this, they begin to cry out, God, will you come and be with us? In our hardship, it feels like you're so far away. It feels like you're not aware of what's going on us. Uh, going on with us. So we're calling on you to come, to be with us, Emmanuel. Now in the New Testament, this title here, Emmanuel, is, it's, it's one of the, the only places where we see it, but a lot of the other titles for, uh, you know, for the Messiah are not used in the New Testament, but Emmanuel is. Why would Emmanuel be so significant? The key word uh, or the key uh, question for us today, I put there in your notes, why would the name Emmanuel become the chief name for the newborn Messiah and King? You know, for me, I, you know, you know, King, right? we, we give it a name, you know, ruler, you know, savior, something like that. Emmanuel just seems so weird, you know, okay, you're with us. Good job. Way to go. Thanks. <laughs> you know, but, but what does that mean? Well, for the people of Israel, the name Emmanuel would have been unbelievably significant and would have changed everything about their worldview. To understand this, we kind of do have to understand a little bit about their worldview. About a year ago, I, I preached a message uh, where uh, it was right around the kingdom series. And I don't know if you guys remember that when we were talking about the kingdom and uh, inside of that kingdom, one of the messages inside of it, we talked about uh, mountains and God and Eden. And I don't know if I, you guys may not remember this, but uh, in the, in the old Testament, ancient Israelites and even, even people that weren't Israelites, kind of the culture viewed that mountains were the home of God's that gods lived up on mountains. And the reason being is because that gods really couldn't tolerate people. For the most part, people were needy. They were, you know, they didn't have powers. They weren't special. They weren't smart, right? They were just, you know, kind of a, a, a drag on God life. And so gods would remove themselves away from the people and go live up on mountains because they didn't want to be with the common people. Now, this is kind of that view. God is far away. He's not interested. He's, he's not engaged. He's not coming to our rescue or, or to our help. This was a pretty common view in the, in the world at that time. In fact, it's not just, it wasn't just a common view then. It's still a common view now. Have you heard anybody who's called themselves an agnostic? Right? An agnostic is someone who who looks at the reality around the world and at least has the intellectual integrity enough to say, this is way too fantastic, way too fine-tuned. There's just too many coincidences to think that this could just happen by accident. 
So they, they look at the reality as the bigness of the universe as well as the smallness of the cell and, and, and into the, the quantum universe, right? Uh, when you start to see the, the design and the fit of everything in this world, an agnostic will go, okay, there's no way that just happened by accident. I'll acknowledge that there was probably a creator or probably some kind of intelligent designer or a god, But an agnostic believes this, that God is not interested in what's happening on earth. He may have created it. He may have spun the ball up, you know, set it off on the shelf, and there it goes, you know, spinning around. Life's going on, but God has disconnected himself, and he's not really participating in the affairs of man. It's the same worldview. It's God is far off. He's not interested. He doesn't want to help. He's not going to be there for us when we call. That's the idea of agnosticism is, is I know that there's a God. I acknowledge that, but he doesn't care about me. He's not engaged with me. The idea of Emmanuel is in direct confrontation with or direct conflict with the concept of agnosticism. Because if an agnostic says, well, God's far away, Emmanuel says God is near. God is with us. He's here. He's present. And if he's present, that changes things for us. It changes our entire worldview. If God isn't just somewhere off in the universe, sitting on some, you know, uh, throne in a cloud somewhere, way far away. That's, believe it or not, that's kind of how we think. But if God's far away and he's not present with us here right now, then guess what? It feels like he's not accessible. It feels like he doesn't really, he's not aware of what's happening here. He doesn't know that he can't influence what's happening with us right here, right now. But if he's here, if he is with us, then that means he is accessible. And it means that he is aware of what's happening with us. He knows. And that he can do something. He can interact with us. He can respond. And for the people of Israel, getting that message, Emmanuel has come, God is with us, it changed their entire perspective on their lives and the universe in which they live. Because suddenly God wasn't far away, he's here. I want you to think about this. The idea that God is near, we see this, there's this this reflection that, it's, it's comforting for us to know that God is with us, that there's a presence that we can access with God. David, in Psalm 139, writes this, and he says this in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I f- flee from your presence? He goes on to say, if I rise up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in in the grave and Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I remember anytime I was 
I was kind of fearful as a child, right? You'd want to go get close to your dad or your mom. You just wanted to be there. And if you were really kind of fearful, you know what would bring great comfort to you? If they would hold your hand. If they would just hold your hand. It was this practical, tangible, I can feel it. I'm aware that you are with me. If you're untethered and there isn't that guarantee you're with me, then all of a sudden the anxiety can easily sweep over. And David writes, what a comforting thought is to know that you're with me. I could just take your hand at any moment. You could take mine at any moment. You're always there no matter where I'm at. If I'm in the grave or if I'm in the heavens, uh, you've got me. You're near. Now, the second thing in your notes there is if God's near, then that means he's also accessible. Every single one of you could ask me a question right here, right now. I'm accessible to you because you're in the room. Now, if you're watching online, it would be a little more difficult because you're far away. But because you guys in the room are near, right? Then I'm accessible. You could say something right now in the service. You could raise your hand, right? There's an interaction. There's an availability. We could actually interact with one another because we are near to one another. The great thing about this is that God hasn't just come to us. Now, that's, that's a wonderful message about Christ and Christmas is that God has come to us. He is now with us, Emmanuel, with us. But not just has he made himself accessible by being in our proximity or being with us now, but you know what he also does? He invites us to come even closer. Not only has God come to us, but he also invites us to come to him. Think about that for a moment. Just the other day, I was, I was kind of working with my, my daughter. Just, she was going through a little struggle, and I just were, was trying to get her to surrender, to let it go. I had way across the room. I'm sitting right next to her. I had made myself available to her, but she needed to surrender. She needed to just let go into me. And so I just said, sweetheart, come to me. Right? I'm sitting right next to her. Right next to her. We were close, near. But I still invited her what? To come even closer. I remember at the end of that little, little struggle, she was on the one side of the bed and I was standing there and I said, Ellie, just come to me. And suddenly in that moment, she just threw up her hands and she ran across the bed and she jumped into my arms and suddenly there was a surrender and an embrace and a closeness that you couldn't get any other way. I couldn't force closeness into that relationship. She had to surrender into it. And the beautiful picture of the gospel is that Christ has come Emmanuel, he is in our midst. He is near us. But he is also inviting you to press into him. He's inviting you to come to him. Listen to what it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. 
I'm inviting you to come to my cell. All you who are laboring, weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a beautiful picture of those who just are tired of chasing things on their own, trying to fix it all on them, on, in, by themselves, right? And Jesus just says, come to me. He's already come to us. But what there's actually this next piece of that closeness, which is just to press into him. Matthew 4.19, Jesus had come to Peter, and yet he turns to Peter in Matthew 4.19 and says, Peter, come, follow me. I'm inviting you to uh, move closer. I've come to you, but now you come with me. It's an invitation deeper. Uh, in James chapter 4, verse 8, James writes this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's this picture of a reciprocal relationship of drawing near to one another. If God is near, that means he's accessible. He's making himself available. He's in our midst. And if we can access God now all of a sudden, because of his nearness, what does that also mean? It means that he's aware. He knows. If I get down right now in the service and I tie my shoe, okay? How many of you guys were aware that that happened? All of you. <laughs> Hopefully, unless you're sleeping. <laughs> You all are aware of what just happened here in the moment. But the people in the houses down the street, they are completely unaware. And the reason is, is because they're not here. They're not near. They're not accessible. And therefore, they are unaware. But here's the thing. If God is here, he's near us. He's made himself accessible to us, meaning we can interact with him and he can interact with us, then what do we also know? That he knows what's going on in our lives. He knows. Here's one of the ways that I, I think it just simply reveals that we don't really believe that God is with us that often. How many of you guys in your prayer feel like you have to let, inform God about all the problems that you've got? God, I'm not sure if you know this, but we got some real problems at Harvest Springs, right? Or whatever. I'm not saying that's not my prayer. I'm sorry. I, bad example. But if you feel like you have to inform God about all the, the context and the things, and that's then, then what it really says about how we're thinking about God is that he's far away and doesn't know. That he's far away, he's disinterested, I'm going to have to catch him up so that he knows what he, I need him to do. But if you have an understanding that God is with you even now, that he's with us in this moment, that his presence, where Jesus said, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with you, I'm present there. Do we fully understand that? Do we fully understand what it means for the God of the universe to be present with us? Not just in our hearts, not just, you know, uh, on the throne. He's on the throne, but he's also right here. In Genesis chapter 16, Hagar, she was kind of a slave slash mistress and uh, had Abraham's first son, uh, 
kind of got in a conflict with Abraham's wife, Sarah, and it just kind of went south and she started getting abused and mistreated and she runs away. In the midst of all of her troubles, she's in the desert and she's basically waiting to die. She just assumes this is how she's thinking, like almost everyone else in the world was thinking. God is far away. God is not accessible. I can't reach out to him. He doesn't hear me when I call. And he's not aware of my situation. He's not aware of the difficulty I'm going through. And so because of that, he won't respond. I'm hopeless. And I'm ultimately going to die here in the desert in this pain and misery. And then God shows up. Right? If you guys read the story, it's Genesis 6. God shows up. He speaks to her, and he lets her know something. I'm here, I'm accessible, and I'm aware. And those three awarenesses, uh, those three truths swept over Hagar's life, and suddenly it was enough for her. She survived. She didn't, she didn't die in despair. God did something in her life there, and in response to God's voice, uh, speaking into her life, here's what she says. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. She's the Hebrew name for God, El Roy, R-O-I, El Roy. El is kind of the, the God, generic God term. And then Roy is, uh, has to do with seeing. The God who sees. She sees in the midst of her darkness that God isn't far away, but he's there. That he's not inaccessible, he's not too busy, but he's actually there, available to her. And that he is fully aware of her situation. He sees everything. And because God's presence in her life, his availability his invitation to trust, his awareness and knowledge, what did that ultimately lead her to believe? That God could do something in response. God is able to engage. God can rescue me in my despair. He can handle the difficulty, the hardship. You know, he can give me strength through it. He can change the circumstances. Whatever it is that, that uh, rescue looks like in that moment, if God's there, if he's accessible, we can ask him. If he's aware, fully comp uh, understanding, then that means that he can do something about it. So you can understand then why the Israelites would become so uh, excited when the news that Emmanuel had come. Because if God is far away, we can't access him. He's not responsive he doesn't know, then we are without hope. But if he's near, if he's with us, that changes everything about our lives. One of the passages of scripture that we often will read uh, this time of year is Isaiah chapter 9. I put it on the back of your notes. If you have your note page, just flip over to it. Isaiah chapter 9. 
We read this oftentimes during the Christmas Eve service. It's a prophecy about the coming king. If you zip down to the, the fourth paragraph there, you'll see that it just says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's, David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteous or justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, right? That's just how it wraps up. And uh, we'll read that. You're probably very familiar. You've probably heard it before if you've been to a Christmas Eve service or to a Christmas service, right? This is a, probably one of the most famous passages around the coming of the Messiah in Jesus' birth. And yet we don't often recognize the very first part of this, which is kind of giving us context for this Messiah to come, there's a very interesting word most of us will jump right over. On your notes, what's the very first word of this, uh, of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1? What is it? Nevertheless. It's a, if it's a different way of saying, but. Right? It, this happened, but this happened. And so, but is always kind of that conjunction. It brings kind of what comes before it and what comes after it brings those two things together and gives them context with one another. They refer to one another. You can't just look at the, the chapter nine without understanding the context of the last part of chapter eight. And if you only look at chapter 8 and you end there and you didn't get the but, right, the rest of it, then you'll misunderstand all of the end part of chapter 8. Are we following here just a little? For instance, if I told you last week the bank took $300 out of my account, okay? If that's all you know, write the story in your head. What is it? I'm guessing some of you think I was, you know, spending spree, you know, irresponsible, um, you know, uh, some kind of, you know, I mean, you could just think the worst kind of things. And if the bank's taking $300 out of your account, that's a pretty big deal. Okay. What if I told you last week, the bank put $300 back into my account? What if I told you that? Well, just that little part, you could go, wow, what happened there? How did you get $300 from the bank? That's the big, you know, the big question. What if I said last week the bank took out $300, but a few days later they put it right back because it was a mistake? Okay? They, uh, an accidental uh, charge or something, but the bank. So now, now tell yourself the story. How has the story changed? Right? It just changes. You have to see both sides. I say that because if we look at verse, if we look at Isaiah chapter nine and we just look at it in its context, right? It's great. It's wonderful. There'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled lands of Zebulun and the land of Natali, but in the future, he will 
honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, right? Those are, that's all great stuff. We're like, yay, wonderful. But we don't know necessarily why that's so wonderful. Unless we take a look at the description of the situation in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20 through 21 and 22. You see, at the end of chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah is describing those who are lost, who are disconnected from God. They're on their own. They're separated. Because of their sin, God is not near to them any longer. Why? Because of their sin. So now God's been, they've been separated from God. Now God is far away. He seems not accessible. He seems like he could, he could care less about what's going on in my life. He's not aware. And therefore he can't rescue me. He can't save me. And this is what their life starts to look like in Isaiah 8, verses 21 through 22. It says this, distressed and hungry. This is in your notes, but it's also up on the screen. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward. And they will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now, if we just take that little chunk, right, well, then guess what? That's really dark. It's discouraging. There's nothing fun about that at all. They're being thrust into utter darkness. They're, they're distressed. They're hungry. They're stressed out. But what's the first word of chapter 9? But. But nevertheless. Just because that may be a reality, that's the, the worst case scenario. We look at that and go, man, that's, that's miserable. Nobody wants that. That's discouraging. And yet sometimes we've, we've been there. We felt that. We feel what it means to be distressed and hungry, like searching for a savior. This isn't necessarily a hunger in the sense of I don't have any food and my stomach's rumbling. This is a hunger of I am hungry to be out of the difficult circumstances that I'm in. I am yearning from the inside to get out of this thing. And somehow I'm searching to find an answer to my problem. And the problem is every time I think I found something, it becomes something it's not. And so what's the next thing? After searching, then we get angry. We get enraged. We start blaming God. And then when we realize that there's nothing left to, you know, blaming God doesn't help anything either. It doesn't make us feel better. It doesn't get us out of our problem. Right? We point the finger, we shake our fists at God, and then what? And then we're just left in our fear, in our gloom, and our darkness. Nevertheless, it's into that difficulty that a son is born. It is into the mess of our lostness that the light has shown. 
I'm going to have the band come out, and we're just going to close with this final thought. This week, I was home. I, uh, I finished watching a, uh, a football game, and there was a couple, it was about an hour before my wife was going to be home. And so I was sitting downstairs, and I opened up Disney Plus, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to just find something to watch, you know, and they, they all have all kinds of shows, and I'm Flip through. Some of you guys are laughing at me because it's Disney Plus. But I, anyway, I get to uh, I get to the this little uh, special on the National Geographic uh, little channel there, and it was a little thing called The Rescue. Has anybody seen it? Okay, you got to watch it. It's unbelievable. In 2018, twelve. Soccer, young soccer players, they're, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old. Uh, and their coach went into a, a cave outside of Chiang Rai, Thailand. And they went into this cave to celebrate the, one of the kids' birthdays. And so they were back there. Uh, the cave was open uh, this time of year. They would sometimes close the cave off during the monsoon seasons because the caves will often fill up with water. They're back there, a sudden storm came, flash flood fills up the, uh, the caves, and then, it's, then the monsoon season just seems to keep coming. The caves keep filling up. For days, people tried to swim in and try to find, uh, you know, diving in these small tunnels and caves in the darkness trying to see if they could find any signs of life from these kids. I believe after 12 days, for the most part, everybody was just like, they're dead. They're gone. You know, how in the world could anybody live in there? They called in these specialized divers. It's one thing to be familiar with diving. The Thai uh, Navy SEALs, were there. They were all very experienced divers, but none of them were experienced cave divers. And evidently, cave diving in a cave is a completely different thing. It's incredibly dangerous, and there's only a few people in the world that actually are experts at this. And they're all kind of older, out of shape <laughs> fellas. Not guys you would think would be the typical rescuer But what's interesting is it was only these guys that knew how to actually uh, navigate through all these caves and make it there. I think on the 14th day or some of the 12th, 13th or 14th day, one of the guys was two hours in, almost two miles swimming through caves. He was thinking he had pressed forward just enough that maybe he was going to turn around and he decided, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going to press just a little bit further. He got into an open spot. When he surfaced, all of a sudden, he began to hear shouts and calls of help. And he swims around the corner and there are all 12 of the young boys and the coach now, I want you to think about what it would be like to be that team. 
14 days underground in absolute pitch dark. No food. But, but literally, what are you thinking? Knowing how far you are back in the caves, knowing that it's full of water, right? And you can't get out. My assumption would be help is a long ways away. They are not accessible. We can't call them, talk to them, communicate with them. There's no accessibility. They cannot be aware that we're even alive. They don't know we're here. And therefore, it means we're hopeless without hope. There's no way we're going to be saved. No rescue. So there they stayed for day after day after day after day. I mean, I could say this 14 times, but you get tired of it. In the darkness but then suddenly in the midst of the darkness, can you just imagine this? Suddenly in the midst of your darkness, a light shines. And up out of the water comes a savior. And he's not just a savior. Why? Because he's with us. He's here. We might be really, really lost. We might not have an idea how to get out of this place, but suddenly they're here. They're present. And it changes everything, right? Because, because this guy's now present, they're near, not far. They're accessible. We can talk to them. We can express our needs. We can let them know. They're aware. They know we're alive. They know we exist. They know our names, right? They're aware. What does that mean? It means we have hope to be saved. What's fascinating about this story is that I mean, again, there was just a handful of people that could possibly, you know, swim through these caves for hours and hours to rescue these kids. These divers understood the danger of trying to rescue these kids. The Thai government, quite honestly, was trying to figure out how to leave them underground for the next eight months. How they were going to try to get food and and stuff to them, which they would have all died. Um, But that was the only seemingly sane uh, opportunity. But one of the divers came up with an idea. He said, there's no way these kids will, will survive being conscious and swimming through the caves. They, they would freak out. They would, they would just, so we are going to have to completely sedate them. And a doctor that was uh, advising them said, this is the worst possible uh, option because we have no idea. This this is probably, they're not going to come out alive. And they said, it's our only option. Every single one of those kids had to let a doctor inject them with, uh, with sedative to completely knock them out. They had to entrust their entire lives into the hands of that diver with no guarantee that they were going to survive. but they trusted the diver and the divers, every single one of them got every single one of 
of those people out of the cave, all 13 of them. And they all trusted the hands of the rescuer. Again, I, I, I tell you that story because it's the gospel for us. It's into our darkness, Emmanuel has come. He's with us. And because he's with us, right, he's accessible. He's aware. And he can help. He can save. And that's why it's such a great thing to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. There we had bowed and I closed. I don't want to just press forward, assuming that we're all just right with God. Maybe in this moment, you just realize, I've never fully just trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've always had this view that God was far away, disinterested, disconnected, but I realize that in my darkness, I need the hope and the life of Christ and that he is the Savior, the one and only. And if that's something you've kind of been wrestling with this morning, it's just something you feel God inviting you to kind of take that step towards him. I want to give you that opportunity today. You just slip up your hand and say, God's inviting me to himself today. See those who've responded. God is inviting me to himself today. So Lord, for those who've just acknowledged to you that they need your help, we just, we lift them up before you. We pray, Lord, that you would help them just surrender their whole lives into your hands. Thank you, God, for being Emmanuel. Thank you for being God that sees. Thank you for being the God that is there and available who can save and rescue. And Father, in all of this, we cast ourselves in your hands, thanking you for being our Savior. We praise you and worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.